Welcome to Tiny House Tales, a podcast about the experiences of people who have joined the tiny house movement. I'm John Weisbarth. And I'm Zach Giffen. Enjoy as we give listeners a behind-the-scenes glimpse into the absolute joys and inherent challenges of living tiny. Together, we'll seek to unlock the successful strategies for minimalist living and learn more about how tiny living has made a big impact on people's lives. Entertaining and informative. Tiny House Tales is mandatory listening for anyone who has ever dreamed of downsizing or has simply craved a more simple lifestyle. Welcome to Tiny House Tales. Nailed it. All right, Zachariah, here we go, man. Tiny House Tales. I'm here for it. The podcast. I'm here. I woke up early. I brought my A-game. I uh, drank two cups of coffee, so my mouth is going to be moving as fast as possible. Nice. This is cup number three right here for me, so I'm, I'm ready to go as well. If I have to stop mid-podcast and pee, you'll understand. Yeah, but just tell me that you put butter in it. No, I've stopped doing what? that. I got my. I went to the doctor. And my cholesterol was a little high. Shocker. <laughs> you put butter in your coffee and you've got high cholesterol. I was like, all right, that's done. Oh. So that's what the podcast is. We just talk about our health thing. So I also have a little uh, rash that's coming in. I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> Zachary, let's talk about this tiny house tales, this endeavor. It's another jaunt into the, into the scary woods of entertainment. Yeah. So tiny house tales. What is this show going to be about? Well, it's not. Tiny House Nation Tales, although I do think that we should definitely get some guests from Tiny House Nation that had that experience, find out where they are now. You know, that's one of the big questions that I always get from people is, oh, do you ever follow up with people? And the answer is, yeah, I mean, we do kind of because we've, you know, kept the answer is starting today. (laughs) Yes, we follow up on people, except not starting today because today's just about you and me. Yeah. But I mean, we do want to talk about what this show is going to be because I think that it deserves a little clarification because as much as I would love to just have, you know, an hour a week with you, just staring into your eyes, hearing your voice, that's not what this is about. We're going to be getting into the story. I mean, it is a little bit about that. It's a little bit about that. Yeah. Well, we do need practice because, you know, what's how long has it been? It's been like three, four. Four years almost. No, it's now. been longer than I oh, care to admit. Yeah. Let's not even say it out loud. Okay. So we have not been shooting episodes of Tiny House Nation for a while now. And uh the truth is I miss you a little bit. And so, you know, we're gonna we're gonna have a little bit more time that's kind of scheduled where we get to talk together and even bring on some guests that are gonna make the conversations that much more exciting and uh get into the big broad world of tiny houses. That's the point. That's the point. Well, yeah, we're, we're going to do a little bit of getting under the hood. We're going to be telling some stories. We're going to be having some fun. But I think your point is a, is a good one. When we started Tiny House Nation in 2014, tiny houses or the idea of a tiny house was not really in the vernacular of the country as much as it is now. So in a lot of ways, like the tiny house movement or the the I'll say it, the need for a show like Tiny House Nation or in this case, a podcast like this. It's more now than it ever was before. It's way more relevant now. So I think that's we we haven't been able to convince the the fine folks at uh, at A and E to uh, to do more episodes. So we figured we'll just start doing podcasts. I've heard about this new technology called podcasting. 
And we'll, we'll talk about all that stuff and be able to do it in a way that, as you say, we can get a lot deeper. Yeah. That's what I love about this idea of the podcast. I, I see this as being much more of conversation, certainly conversation with you and I, but also, as you say, some very interesting guests, some we know that we're familiar with and some that we'll be meeting for the very first time. Yeah. And the truth is, is just what you were saying is that I feel like right now is a more relevant time than ever to talk about tiny homes, to kind of help the awareness of tiny homes spread. And, and part of the reason is not just because the fundamental factors that have like led people to look at tiny homes, the economics of it, the environmental concerns that are out there, they're more relevant now than they've ever been. But also a lot of the barriers that have been preventing tiny homes from being a viable housing option have been getting broken down slowly, but surely we're winning that battle. And so now instead of just kind of inspiring people about this idea of living minimally, there's actual places where this is a viable option that people can really follow through with. So that's part of it. That's kind of the dirty little secret that we never talked about on tiny house nation. When we were doing those tiny houses, they were not, strictly speaking, 100% legal permanent dwellings, right? So if you notice, like, I mean, to a certain degree, and I'll let you clarify that, but I'm just saying that, like, there's a reason most of our episodes were out in the countryside because, <laughs> you know, no one was going around. There, there wasn't a bunch of, like, zoning police officers going around farmland. And it was like, as long as no one was complaining, it was okay. But a lot of those tiny houses that we were building especially in the beginning, we're out on like farmland where they were able to lease some land. And it was fine. No one was going to complain. But a lot of those issues, the zoning, as well as just the, the permanent of these things has changed. And you've played a big part in that, actually. Yeah. I mean, and truthfully, I think the barriers to tiny homes, it's very complex, right? And it's not the same everywhere. And I think, you know, people, you know, within you know, the establishment of Tiny House Nation, the people that were kind of pulling the purse strings, I don't blame them for not necessarily being able to wrap their heads around all of the different factors that kind of would allow or disallow tiny homes. But by the time that we were kind of filming the show and into it, it was almost like just keep the blinders on a little bit because it's difficult to know exactly what all of the laws and all of the different places are. And what John is referring to in terms of being out in the countryside is that, you know, the places that tiny homes are actually a legal option are typically not in your cities that have more restrictive zoning policies. There's a lot of kind of rural areas that don't have limitations on living in recreational vehicles and allow for a lot of different kind of flexibility in terms of the housing types. And that's where, at least when we first started, tiny homes had legal pathways to do that. And then they're also, you know, zoning is the barrier to tiny homes and you can build a tiny home in different methods in terms of building to different codes and, you know, local, depending on the state, right? Local municipalities have the ability to design their own building codes. And the reality is, is it's different everywhere. And so it's really hard to keep track of. And that's been part of the big changes. But, you know, in at risk of boring people to death. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> that would be a terrible television show. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it's I think this is a good spot for it. You can get a little bit more. But so to be totally fair to Tiny House Nation, 
we were never, that was never, ever going to be the show. The show was to normalize the idea of tiny houses, to make it inspirational and or aspirational. And I will say that from the very get go, Nick Grigg, who was one of the creators, he was the president of the production company that did tiny house nation. What he said from the very beginning was this is not hoarders. This is not, Oh, look what these crazy people want to do. He's like, this is aspirational. And listen, that, that's it makes a lot of sense now, but that will, maybe isn't the obvious choice for a reality TV show in 2014. Yeah. Right. And so I give him a lot of credit for setting the tone and saying, no, 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 we're not pointing at these people going, what are they doing? We're like, hey, come along with us. And so that tone, I think, played a big part in in really normalizing the movement. Like I said, we never invented tiny house uh, movement or whatever, but I do think we get a little credit for for uh, popularizing it, for normalizing it a little bit. And I do think that that was an important thing that happened right in the beginning, because before that, you know, when the whole idea of a show about tiny homes was floated, I'm sure that a certain amount of the appeal that got the whole concept greenlit was that there was going to be some aspirational aspects, but then there was also this kind of element of like, oh, let's look at these crazy people that want to live in these crazy tight spaces and kind of it's going to make our skin crawl a little bit and then we'll we'll enjoy that a little bit. So I think that like in the process of green lighting tiny homes, I think that or tiny house nation, I think that maybe there was some elements of like, okay, let's let's just like, you know, witness, bear witness to the craziness but I think really quickly, and we'll give Nick Rigg a lot of credit for that, is that we started building really cute, adorable homes. And it really was quickly recognized that this show was going to be about inspiration. And all I'm saying is the very first thing he said to me before I ever did an episode was, this is aspirational. That's the tone. Yeah. So he knew what it wanted to be. And so I appreciate that. Okay. Can we get into some, I actually, here's what I want to do. I want to talk a little bit about us and I want to talk about you specifically first. Because we've talked about how we've met before in some other venues over the years, and we can talk about that again. But I want to go back even further than that, because here you are, born and raised in, in Gold Hill, Colorado, little town up in the mountains above Boulder. And what I think a lot of people know about you now is that you are a professional skier. Hmm. What I'm curious about is, is that kind of that upbringing a little bit into how you became a professional skier. But even before that, raised as a Quaker in a small town, you've got two other brothers. I mean, like walk me through little Zachy Giffen and like how he, how he came to be the, the monster that you are today. Uh, well, I mean, I think that, you know, having two brothers was a big piece of my reality growing up. You know, being a Quaker was definitely like part of my identity. And, you know, by Quaker, it was more of that, like my, my parents wanted, you know, a group kind of a, a faith based organization to be a part of that kind of created community. We weren't really, really like heavy into the Christianity element of it. It was more about kind of maybe kind of using the example that was set through the faith. Right. And, and, and just so you know, how that re is relevant to to tiny houses is that one of the big elements, you know, besides passivism, right? One of the big elements of Quakers in the Quaker faith is simplicity. And so, you know, different people in the faith kind of take that in different directions. In our family, it was more just kind of this recognition of like not, not pursuing excess, right? And being 
being happy with the the true joys, being aware of where the true joys of life come from. And so that's how it kind of plays directly into this whole kind of tiny home world and minimalism in general. It wasn't ex- an extreme thing. It was just an awareness. And then with my brothers, you know, going in the direction of athletics was just because that's what we love to do. And growing up in the mountains and skiing was kind of part of that. And then there was another element, which is that I kind of had this awareness from a pretty young age that I had some some talent as an artist. And so, you know, for me, the carpentry came from this awareness of my artistic capacity and how like really fulfilling it was to uh, to kind of stretch that that part of my my muscle. And then recognizing that building homes was kind of one of the only kind of jobs or occupations that could actually pay for your life. That would, you know, also enable me to kind of like stretch that that artistic muscle a little bit. And so the building homes was really, a, it was because I was, I was brought up in a, a mountain town and that was one of the available jobs that was out there, right? And it also enabled you to kind of be a little bit of an artist. It allowed, it, it required a bit of physicality, but it also was perfect for skiing because it's kind of hard to build houses in the wintertime. So a lot of the bosses are pretty lenient in the wintertime about giving you, you know, time off. At what point did you decide, hey, I'm going to be a professional skier? Because that just seems crazy to me to just be like, like how that, how that unfolded because I, well, talk me through that decision because then I know at a pretty young age, at like 19, you basically left home and moved from Colorado to Washington to really pursue it. But like, what led up to that decision? What gave you the audacity to be like, yeah, I'm going to do this. It was definitely not my decision. Nobody has the decision in, in kind of like the ability to decide that all you can do is you can decide to pursue it. Right. And so, Mm. and, and when I left home, it was a little bit later than that. I was actually 23 when I actually kind of moved out, I, uh, you know, out of Colorado, anyways, out of my hometown. Got it. What it kind of came to was that, you know, I always enjoyed school. You know, I never had a problem academically, but there was this awareness that, yeah, I just really, really knew that I wanted to be an artist of some kind. And it didn't, you know, my, bro- my definition was fairly broad. And skiing was kind of a little bit like dance, right? So it did fulfill that part of my desire as well. So did the carpentry, but it was more about this kind of awareness. And I think this kind of ties back into the mentality of tiny homes is that, you know, I realized that like life is short, you know, and that you're only given so many opportunities and so many blessings and to kind of honor this recognition that I had, that I had a bit of capacity as an artist, but I also had some talent as an athlete, right? And skiing was kind of all the different kind of athletic endeavors. Skiing was the one that I kind of, I, I had a little bit more, my, I, my star shine a little brighter in that area. And my older brother was super into it. And he had some friends that were radical skiers and snowboarders, and they started getting into filming. And so I was just kind of trying to hang out with their crew. And, and that elevated my, my skiing and just kind of my, my daring, just trying to be kind of accepted into, you know, their, their crew was a big piece of what like brought me to kind of push myself in that. And then once I was there and I was kind of, okay, like my, I'm actually, my skill sets are at that point. Then it was pretty easy to look around me and recognize that, you know, I was standing out a little bit. And that was when I was about 19, I started competing 
in in ski and snowboard competition or skiing competitions in the the big air and the half pipe. This is when Terrain Park was just coming out. Zach, how many times have you been on a snowboard? Oh, I've snowboarded, John. Are you are you kidding me? Okay, it, I didn't know you're like such a skier. At least I five like you're times. Like five times. Yeah. <laughs> <No>. yeah. <laughs> at least five times. Okay. Yeah. No, I'm not much of a snowboarder. I shouldn't even use that word. But so what what ended up happening to me, truthfully, John, is that I was competing and I was doing pretty well, but there's these there's these places in the summertime where you can go and mostly Mount Hood, but also Whistler, where they have snow and they create these amazing terrain parks. And it's like a phenomenal training ground. And the conditions are so perfect. And I I I think I was 21 and I was dating a a girl in that who lived in Hood River, Oregon. And so I went and stayed with her in, for the summer. And I had gotten some kind of good tax return that year. And so I had like 1500 bucks and I took the whole thing and I spent it on. I love it. 1500 bucks. Your big tax return. <laughs> well, this is huge back then. And I, I spent like the whole thing on uh, a week of this summer camp out in Mount Hood. And it was the Wendell's summer camp. And I went out there and I was the only 21 year old. Everybody else was like, you know. 12 to like 16 and then like there's zach like fully grown (laughs) old man and i was like camped out you know like drinking beer in the parking lot like sleeping in the tent everybody else was going back to the to the actual you know summer camp and and uh what i recognized there was that not only was the training so profoundly elevated from what i was used to that like my skill set was advancing so so much what i recognize is that oh my goodness, if I actually want to compete in this, in this world, I have to be in these kind of areas where I have access to this type of training, right? And if I don't, if I'm not serious about it, I have no business even trying to compete. And that's what I was realizing is, you know, I was um, building homes. So I was working, you know, five days a week. And then I was just going up on the weekends and just throwing myself in these terrain parks, trying to like elevate my skills and and, and get better and better and then showing up to these contests and getting edged out by people that had just a lot more resources than I I did and didn't have to work a nine to five. A bunch and, of 14 year olds just <laughs> muscling you out of the competition. No, they were college kids. They were kids that, you know, went to college and like actually wound up with a lot more free time than I did and were able to kind of just get more time on the slopes. And so, you know, that was this dawning realization right then. And I didn't have the ability to kind of shift my life that drastically at that moment. And it wasn't until really two years later, and, you know, we probably should give a disclaimer here is that like, you know, life isn't always super nice to people. And I had a year in 2023 where I had some pretty harsh things go down. And, you know, my, my really, one of my very best friends, who's my roommate, he ended up passing away and uh, we won't get into it, but it was really traumatic for me. It was very, you know, it was in my house and uh, it just left me in this very upended space and I didn't feel comfortable going back to my house. So even though I had a place to live, it wasn't a place that I felt comfortable and it went on for months and I ended up really kind of bouncing around from couch to couch and then feeling that sense that people get when they've kind of worn out their welcome, you know what I mean? And and by the end of the summer- yeah. I was sleeping in a tent in the backyard of my girlfriend's mom's house. And that's where it had gotten to. Uh, living the dream. Yeah. Living the dream. <laughs> yeah. Tent in the backyard of your girlfriend's mom's house. It, I mean. It was super awkward. 
top of the mountain. It was super awkward. And, super awkward. You know, and I, it was that kind of, uh, it was that moment that really kind of was the catalyst for me to say, okay, I, if I'm going to really pursue this, this dream of, you say, when I decided to become a professional skier, it wasn't that I decided to become a professional skier. <laughs> Is that you were tired of pooping in the backyard of your girlfriend's mom's house? <laughs> no, they let me <laughs> use holes. the shower. They let me use it. Oh, okay. I don't know. You didn't say that in the story. Well, and also I was a carpenter, so I could just roll to the job site early and like that was, you know, points for showing up to work early. They didn't have to know it was because I needed to use the porta potty. Okay, okay, okay. We don't need to get into all that. <laughs> but anyway, so yeah, that's a it's a big catalyst in my life. And it was one of those moments that just kind of forced me to kind of say, Hey, there's a dream I have. How can I achieve this dream? Am I going to make a lot more money so I can save up so then I can take all winter off? Right. Cause that's one option that people do. But like the the finances of my life wasn't it wasn't working out that way, right? Or can I take a look at my expenses in my life and try to pare down on my expenses and so that I can then return, step away from working as much as I was and really turn that time into training and into doing the things that I love to do. And, and by that time, I had also kind of recognized that there's two worlds within skiing. There's the train park world where you're trying to like prove yourself and get, you know, maybe make it to the X Games and then eventually get invited to Alaska to go film in the movies. But then I had also been on these trips. I had seen these places in British Columbia and Washington State. And there was a place called Mount Baker that I had just fallen in love with. And I recognized, wow, maybe I don't have to wait for somebody else's permission. You know, maybe I can take the steps in my own life to go right to the source, to the place that I know will enable me to do the type of skiing that I want to do. And so that's essentially what I decided to do. And that, I think, talk about getting to the source of it. I think that is a little bit of what we want this podcast to be. Because what you're talking about is eventually in a roundabout way, you came to tiny houses. I mean, first you were living in a van, you had an RV, but the idea being cut those expenses, use the tiny house as a tool to go after this thing that you wanted. And I do think that's a very common theme that we found certainly on the show. And I think in general about tiny houses is the idea that people are looking at exactly what you said, either it's their time, it's their finances. Oftentimes it's both. And they say, okay, yeah, I don't have the option to just make $100,000 more a year. But I can cut some expenses and I can do a thing that will enable me to live a richer, fuller life. And those are the stories that I think this podcast is going to at least try to find and touch on. Not all the time, but it's that. It's very much the same thing that you did that led you to skiing. Yeah. Or not led you to skiing, but led you to the tiny house and allowed you to pursue and continue to pursue skiing. Exactly. Because when we're talking about the expenses in our lives that are holding us back from pursuing our dreams, what is the number one expense for almost everybody in this country and in this world? It's housing, right? It's it's our rents or our our um our mortgages represent, you know, for most people it's 30% of your income. Um, and that's been creeping up. I think for me at that time, it was closer to 50% probably because I was living in Boulder, Colorado, which is a very expensive place to pay rent. Um, and the biggest inhibitor to me to being able to really pursue what I was trying to do, which was train to be a skier and see how far I could take that was being kind of trapped into this 
kind of place where I felt like I was treading water financially and not able to kind of make any kind of savings, but just paying for the life and then having the weekends. And so the tool that enabled me to make that big jump was I bought an RV. And John, it was the most dilapidated RV that you. I have no doubt, Zach. (laughs) Nothing about that sentence surprises me at all. I mean, I got it for, I think, like 1400 bucks and it was a 1976 Tioga RV and uh you know the, beautiful <laughs> the engine I you know had no relevance for whether or not it was a good investment or not but the roof had caved in cuz he had driven it underneath a tree branch and the air conditioning had unit had just basically been pushed right through the roof and so the very first thing I had to do was I I cut the roof off and I like reframed a different roof out of wood and then I put in hardwood floors and I like had to redo a bunch of the cabinets. And so by the end of the summer, you know, I was kind of laying this, this whole game plan out while I was living in the tent and I was, I was doing the RV and, uh, basically like by the end of the summer, I was pretty darn stoked on the RV and it was very much kind of a tiny house because it was an RV, but it was very modified. So the inside was pretty beautiful. It had, you know, you know, everything had been redone, but on the outside, it was absolutely what you would describe as like a, a zombie RV. And, uh, yeah, hoopty. A hoop. <laughs> yeah. But okay, so but so I'm gonna, I want to skip ahead okay. just a little yeah. bit. I love that you're taking me through literally every single day um, of your <laughs> 20s. That's great. But the idea is, okay, RV, then eventually it was a van that you put up a stove in, right? And you're, and you're kind of mm-hmm. like going up. You discover like tiny house. The idea of like, oh, I can do that. Mm-hmm. You build your own tiny house. You're using it exactly as your mobile ski chalet yeah. and you're going around and 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 you're you're making a little bit more money skiing. You're making some films mm-hmm. about tiny houses and skiing. Yep. But what I want to hear about then is when did Tiny House Nation and how did that come across your radar? Because you were living that lifestyle. Mm-hmm. So you were doing a little bit about that. But then. It was kind of like an open casting call, sort of. So, yeah, I mean, I had built the tiny home and I had been traveling in it for a couple of years. And and when we're talking about the legality of it, I mean, that's really how I legally was able to be in the tiny home is I kept moving, you know, and I, I didn't settle down into one space. That's when you get the red flags, right? And that's what we're trying to fight for. But basically, I had, you know, been making a big kind of hoopla over what we had been doing. I'd been filming some movies and there was a friend of mine who he was kind of like aspiring to be in the television world. Doozer. Doozer. Yeah. And basically one time he, I think he saw a, an email come by. There was a casting call and essentially sent me an email that said, Hey Zach, looks like they're looking for you. And the casting call had, you know, it listed, okay, it has to be between the ages of 25 and 45, I think I was 33. It's like have to have built and lived in your own tiny home, can speak the language of construction and is not afraid of production, not afraid of cameras. And I was kind of like, oh, check, 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 check. And I uh, <laughs> basically sent him a, like a one line email saying, hey, guys, sounds like you're looking for me. And I didn't hear anything. That back. was it. That was your big email. Yeah, I was like, hey, guys, sounds like you're looking for me. Like, hit me up, you know, and uh Oh Didn't hear God. anything back. So I was like, okay, whatever. And then, you know, Shocker. I was in Utah and I was with my girlfriend at the time and we were skiing. We were parked in the uh, Alta at the Peruvian. If anybody knows Alta, shout out. And, uh, and basically 
And we were going skiing and I got this email that came in and said, hey, Zach, we love we love it. We love your one word oh, email. Maybe. You son of a bitch. You have no idea how hard I work for this <laughs> stuff. And you're like, yeah, sounds like you're looking for me. I'm going to go ski. <laughs> and then you got television producers calling you. Well, God. I think that they had like gone through a whole bunch of their first price first choices and they all kind of fell through on them and then they're like oh there's there's this guy like let's you know so they asked me to film myself on a on a phone just talking to the camera for like three minutes and you know the the big story there and i think it's relevant is that you know i had a pretty big beard i was definitely like going for the massive hippie look you know i had long long curly hair big beard and uh you know i'm, I'm sure i was gorgeous back then but i i knew <laughs> i knew that if I film myself, they'd take one look at me and be like, this guy is wild, radical, and it's too much for us. We can't, we can't hire this guy. So I, I told my girlfriend, I was like, okay, well, I need to do this and I'm going to go get a haircut. And she was just so unimpressed, mostly because it was like, she <laughs> wanted to go skiing, but also that the idea, like neither one of us thought all that highly of reality television and, you know. It's, it's, uh, you know, it just wasn't a, a thing that was on the radar. And so she's just like, oh my God, you really want to be involved in reality TV. And not only that, but you're going to like, take it so seriously that you're going to cut your hair. And, and I was like, well, you know, I mean, I know it's just one day of skiing and I'm going to, I don't want to miss it, but yeah. And so I went down to Salt Lake and I got a haircut and I came back and oh I my gosh. did a couple takes and filmed myself. Do you remember what you said? I, you know, it was just in my tiny house and I said, Hey, I'm Zach. Like, this is my life. Like maybe I showed off some of the different things that I liked about my tiny home. I think that that's probably what I, what I did. I had some pretty darn cool elements that I had built for my own tiny home, the spiral staircase and this like, you know, wine, like wine rack that was on spring loaded and, you know, just some beautiful elements. And I had already seen the reactions that people would have when they came into my tiny home. And I think that this was an awareness that I brought with me to the show, right? Was that, okay, yeah, tiny homes are cool, but you can make some really cool, beautiful elements that kind of steal the show, if that makes sense. Yeah. So you make this video, yeah, you make it, this video, don't hear you anything. send it off. I don't see, for another yeah. two months, like nothing or like another month and a half. And you kind of yeah. are like, well, whatever. And your girlfriend's like, see, you shouldn't have missed that day of skiing. Totally. Your haircut looks stupid. Like whatever. Yeah. And you're like, you're right. That was my bad. And then then, then, like literally the next email that I got was like, okay, you're hired. How soon can you be in in New York city? And I was by that point, I was in Rogers pass, British Columbia, which is like, you know, God's gift to skiers. It's the most incredible place that you can imagine as skiing for skiers. It's the, the most inland temperate rainforest, which means that they it's cold enough to be light and dry snow, but they also get a lot of precipitation. So there's a, you know, big snowpack. And this was, you know, back when it wasn't a big thing and you could camp out right on the pass and it was, we were just in heaven. And so I got this email, but you know, we are, it's about a 45 minute drive back to this little town of Revelstoke. And like back then there was no ski areas. It was just this like, you know, logging town. And, um, you know, they wanted me to like send in the contract that day. And to me, it was just like, whoa, these guys have no idea. <laughs> they don't know where I am or who I am or what's going on. Like it's powder. Oh my God. And I, and I think it took me like three days to, to get them the contract back because I had to you know, finish skiing, convince everybody to drive <laughs> yeah, back, I mean, obviously, yeah. you know, and, and, um, and 
that was which just, probably in a weird way was was like great move on your part. Yeah, set the standards right. low right off the bat. Like this guy's totally, not respond totally. quickly. <laughs> so, and boy, have you lived up to that, okay. my friend. So yeah, that and then you know within a week of that, I was flying off to New York. First episode was in uh, in Worcester. Basically, the rest is history. So that was my tiny house tale, John. Well, okay. I mean, you kind of skipped over a whole bunch. So you, I mean, you show up. The best part is you say they had no idea what they were dealing with. They had an idea because as we were talking before we started this, your first contract was like a bag of peanuts and um, <laughs> some sawdust because they're like, oh, this guy is a ski bum. We don't have to give him anything. He's going to work hard. <laughs> And so, you know, and we've talked about this before. I was not the first uh, host. I was not your first co-host. There was another guy Mm -hmm. uh, who I never met. And, you know, have we talked about that? Well, I've obviously I've yes, I've talked about not being the the first host. And so you did that first episode with a different host and anyone that's ever done television or been around it and probably not that many people, but first episodes of things or pilot episodes of things are it's shocking how little anyone understands what it is they're doing. Yeah. It's like, how did this even get to this point that we're here? And then everyone has a different idea and you're trying different things. And there's so many pressures, Mm -hmm. right? There's pressures from the production company, from the network, from everyone on the set. That's like trying to prove that they deserve to be here. I can only imagine and I've been involved in these things before, how difficult that is on a couple of people that are trying to take in all of that. You know, you and the other guy, they're trying to take all of that in. Mm -hmm. You're not sure what you're doing. You're hearing conflicting things from everyone. People are in your ears. It's really, really hard to do. And unfortunately, in that situation, what they kind of noticed was, in my understanding, you know, is that it was, they kind of had two experts on there and they didn't have say one expert, the tiny house guy, Zach, and a say pure kind of host person. Mm-hmm. And so after that first week, they said, okay, we're going to find a new host. We're going to keep Zach. We're going to take one week off and then we're, and then we're going. Mm-hmm. And that's when it first came to my, that's when it first came across my desk was in that desperate moment where they needed somebody. And thank goodness, because that's the only way it would have ever happened for me. Mm-hmm. They didn't have a choice Yeah, because I had, you know, I had been auditioning for two and a half years to host some stuff. I'd been a sportscaster yep. for a decade and I was done with that. You know, for me, I was so fresh to the whole world and it, I was luckily I was naive enough not to kind of recognize how heavy duty and like on edge every single person was on set because we didn't have a pilot, right? We were just went right into production. And and so we were being kind of like under this heavy duty microscope for every little nitpicky thing that we did. And it was just brutal on everybody else. And I was kind of there like recognizing that it was stressful, but like at the same time, just kind of like, Hey, easy come, easy go. So like, yeah, you could go back, shoot. They, yeah. You were going to go back and ski some sweet powder if this didn't work no, out. No big deal. Yeah. And, and so sexy indifference, Zach, <laughs> sexy indifference. That is the key to this business, but you can't fake it. You have to really be sexily indifferent. And that's what you had for sure. Yeah. But the, you know, there was a whole lot of people that were on set every day that never, ever co- came back after that first episode. You know, it was like yeah, um, yeah. Ex- executive from the network, the, you know, 
Nick Rigg, which we already spoke about. Sean was there. So there was just like, there was a whole lot of supervision and people were under a lot of pressure. And like after that first episode, it wasn't just Pete, who was the other host that got, you know, kind of axed. It was like half the crew, including like the, yeah, head, including the director, yeah, the director, you know, so just, you know, just massive shift. And, you know, back to your story, I got this call kind of after that episode, they flew me to New York City and wanted to have some meetings. And uh, I didn't know what it was about, but I got a call from Nick and he's like, so Zach, just, you know, like, I know you're friends with Pete, but like, you just have to understand, like, it's not up to you. Like he's, he's gone. And so if you want this show to continue, there's this new guy that's coming into town and I recommend <laughs> that you become good friends real quick. <laughs> And dun, 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 dun. who did they oh. have in mind? Well, he's tall. Oh, God. I he's got a you. great voice. And <laughs> yeah, luckily. Dude, I got to say, though, that moment, too. Like, so for me, right, I was in a pretty like low spot because it had been two and a half years since I stopped being the sportscaster. And I had been like going for different like hosting things and couldn't get anything, couldn't get anything. It was really in that point where I would say two years into a bunch of no's, mm -hmm. you start like I was like really doubting myself. I'd always had that thing of, oh, yeah, like this is what I'm going to do. I mean, my background, you know, I, I like getting up in front of people. I like performing as a sports caster. I had done well. But what I realized is I didn't love sports. <laughs> like I like playing sports and being a sportscaster in San Diego was good because that's where I'm from. So I follow those teams, but it was too hard for me to care about all of the other mm. leagues and teams that you have to care about. If you want to go to a regional or national level, which I did want to do, but recognize it wasn't going to be sports. So anyway, now I've got like total self doubt. I'm not feeling, I'm like desperate. So you had the sexy indifference. I did not. I had the just desperate, please, please, please like me, you know, syndrome, <laughs> which is awful. It's not how you want to go into dating or a television uh, audition. And I remember rolling into the conference room at the production company in, in New York and you weren't there yet. And I met the, the showrunner who I later found out she was like, I don't want some stupid sports caster as the host of my show. <laughs> and so I was like, oh, I, I mean, like, luckily she was very nice and, and um, was open to me, but anyway, I talked to her for a little bit and then you wandered in and I don't know what I was expecting, but I was not expecting you because the way they described it to me was like, Oh, you're going to meet the contractor. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, this is going to be some like 50 year old with a beer belly. He's going to like really know his stuff. And I have a little bit of like a handyman background from my dad, but not a construction one. So I would, I was like, okay, joists and uh, headers. And I was like trying to like study <laughs> all of the like building stuff. And then you walk in, I'm like, I think I ordered coffee from you. I was like, oh, thanks. Can I get a coffee while we wait for that? You're like, no, man, I'm the, I'm the guy. <laughs> I'm like, oh, Jesus, this guy, I thought it was, I thought he was homeless. Okay. Come on in. <laughs> Yeah. And, uh, and, and from my and perspective, then, yeah, and then, it was like, yeah, you know, I, I like people. Right. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to like whoever it is. I'm totally down, oh, no. you know? And I, I remember you came in and you're like, you know, had the flannel shirt on, you know, we're kind of like looking, looking contractor, but then I saw your shoes and I remember you uh -oh. had like, 
you had like leather shoes that were like almost like loafers or something. And it was just like, it, there was just oh, a, I was not wearing loafers. Well, it wasn't like what I was expecting. There was like, it was like the, the outfit was like all perfect. And then it was like down to the shoes and it was just like red flag kind of thing. Shoes give you away every time. <laughs> Well, it's so funny. The flannel, it's so funny because the one thing my agent, who is now our agent, had said when the when the whole opportunity for the tiny house thing came, because I did a I did an on camera like Zoom interview first. And I remember like the day before Tyler, our agent, was like, hey, what do you know about the tiny house movement? I was like, "Uh, nothing is for little people. He's like, no, it's for normal sized people. Learn whatever you can about it and wear a flannel. That was the only thing. And so I wore a flannel in that thing. And I'm like, I'm wearing a flannel again. And then, of course, the thing is, is that then I had to wear a flannel every episode <laughs> in the like stifling heat in the summer in the South. You're in like shorts, a T-shirt. I've got jeans and a flannel on and I'm dying in my real life. I just wear board shorts and T-shirts all day long. But man, everything on TV, I've got a flannel on. So, yeah, I did not have the shoes yeah. for it. But then, yeah, so we met and we talked. We went and filmed something really, really randomly. Mm -hmm. We went to like a hardware store in Manhattan. Yeah, it was a good choice for this hardware store because, you know, for me, I'm like, I'm a little sensitive about like the, the spirit of the movement and just staying true to kind of the grassroots element of, of tiny home movement. It's kind of, it's what was important about it to me. It's what I saw it in terms of the, uh, the appeal that it had. And so luckily they didn't just like send us to a home Depot. They, you know, they had this like kind of boutique hardware store that had a lot of kind of cool kind of environmentally Green conscious. Products for yeah. lack of a better and, word. and so yeah. that, that really helped the fact that they chose that space. Cause it gave us something like relevant to talk about. Totally. And what we did and what, what I would say, and I've always said too, cause we, you know, what's interesting when I was a sportscaster, it was the same thing. And it certainly was on this. I've always said it's kind of like an arranged marriage mm -hmm. because we get put together and we've met and we've known each other for an hour and we're supposed to have chemistry. Mm -hmm. We're supposed to look like we've, we've been friends for a long, long time. And that is not always easy to do. One, I think it's pretty easy to do with you. I think an authenticity has to come through mm -hmm. and I give you a lot of credit for that. But the other thing I give you credit for was being totally open to it mm. is like being like, Hey, okay, this is, we have to find something in common. And I remember talking about surfing and you talking about skiing. And I was like, well, they're both water. I mean, one's frozen, one's not. Like, we really are the same. But it's like so lame. And I'm comparing myself as like an intermediate surfer to a professional skier. I'm like, we're like pretty much the same. But, you know, I do give you a lot of credit for for being open. And we had at least enough of chemistry to to get hired. I don't know if, you know, we found it right away, but at least for me, you know, I talked about my older brother and his friends and how they really brought me into the kind of the dream of being a skier and opened that possibility for me. Well, my brother's really good friend was also Paul Bauman, shout out. He turned into kind of a mentor to me in all sorts of ways in terms of skiing, tall Paul, we're tall talking Paul, about. yeah. And, but he was also my boss building homes for, you know, the better part of a decade. And he's just a, he's just a really inspirational person in, in my life. And the other aspect to that is that he was my older brother's best friend. And so there was this kind of like older brother dynamic. So even though he was my boss and we were kind of like teammates on some levels, it was like, there was that dynamic of like, kind of like, I was definitely like, we were giving each other shit all day, every day. 
But at the end of it all, it's like there was a deep respect and a deep love for each other. And I think so when we started working together, you and I, you know, you were like a couple years older than me and you just kind of fit that. You were tall, just like Paul. So it was like, I almost kind of borrowed that relationship that I had with him and we just naturally fell into that ourselves. And I think that if people recognize one thing on our show with our dynamic, I think it is that. It's that like, there is this brotherly love that we have for each other that's real. And and there is a, a lot of respect that we have for each other that is real. And so- you know, that's, I agree. That's, I think it comes off and you talk about chemistry, but I, I just feel like you can't, there's a certain amount of that kind of thing that you can't really fake. No, but that's what I mean. I think that's what chemistry is. You're not faking it. The other, you know, and, and it was authentic and, and I, you know, we have talked about it before the, after we went to that hardware store, we're like, Hey, do you want to go get a beer? And we're like, yeah. And the one beer turned into two beers and we were talking about, it. and you said a lot of this stuff. And I think we had a conversation that really set the tone for what the relationship was going to be moving forward. And, you know, everything from how important the tiny house movement was to you and how, hey, I know this is reality TV. I know this has to be entertaining, but I'm not signing on for something that's not authentic to the movement, which was huge. Mm -hmm. And it was good for me to hear. But then you also gave me permission to not know about it. And you're like, that I think is the best. Like, listen, I'm, you know, and that's what worked about our show is that I could come from it from a little bit more of an everyman perspective, mm-hmm. a little bit new and curious to it. You could come as a thing that actually, you know, I've always said the tiny house was the star of the show. You were the heart and soul of it and gave us the legitimacy because it, and I was there to make it more palatable. Mm-hmm. And I think that really, that combination worked out really well, almost a hundred episodes. Well, and, and I, I call that less scary. You were there to make it more approachable for more people, right? Because you were more relatable to kind of average Americans in terms of just the, your, your linguist, you know, the way you speak, the way you present yourself, your life experience, my shoes, you know, my nice kind of like, loafers, <laughs> like I can cut my hair, I can shave my beard, but like people can see through you're not that. Fooling anybody. They can see through Everybody. that, you know? <laughs> Totally. So, you know, and it, it's a, it was a really important dynamic. And, and I think that that was something that I really cared about a lot because yes, tiny homes is a little bit of a radical concept, you know, living with less with this idea that you are actually going to expand your life and expand your experiences and expand the joy and, and the way that you get to live your time in this world. That's kind of a radical, like almost anti-American concept. And so to try to have that message come from somebody that's a little bit less obviously different, I think is really important and and was a big success of of what we did. I would challenge you about the anti-American concept. I understand what you're Mm. saying. The idea that less is more because like the consumerism, capitalism is more is more, but the, but the heart of what we're talking about is freedom to live the kind of life that you want to live. And I do think that that is super American. I do think that is the American dream, yeah. that ability to, to do that. And so, but I, I get what you mean. Well, I think but I what I mean, that. I think what I mean, and thanks for, thanks for saying that because it's true. It's not anti-American in any way. This is about freedom and about self-determination 
and about being, you know, as as proud and tough as you can be. I think, you know, our society has kind of got into this situation where we've, I'm going to call it a con. We've been conned into believing that we need to keep up with the Joneses, that we need all these material things to keep us happy. And, you know, to me, I don't think that that has been the way that Americans have kind of existed for much of our history. I think that's more of a recent element that has become so kind of, I mean, it's ingrained in kind of modern American culture that it's almost looked at as like, that's what Americanism is or being American is. And I totally thank you for correcting me on that. But I do feel like there has been this pendulum swing towards bigger is better and like excess is, you know, to the point where it almost demanded a movement like the tiny home movement, like the minimalist movement to just kind of put that into question and, and pull it back. And, and me being coming from the community of skiers and the community of kind of outdoorsmen who, you know, dirt bags, yeah. you can just say it <laughs> dirt bags. Totally. For me being, you know, coming from that community of dirt bags, whether that's skiing or surfing or all of these different elements that kind of recognize like, wow, the true beauty of the world is in these potential amazing experiences that you can have and the connections with people that you can develop and that this materialism is kind of, it's, it's gone too far and it's kind of questioning the motives behind that. I think it's like I've said before, you know, tiny homes is it's, it's only a really profound kind of concept because our culture has gone so far in the direction of excess. And so that's why you know, it is so needed, right? And here we are in a position where I think that that mentality has led us down this path where we've got some real problems that are occurring because of it, you know, in our housing sector, in people's, you know, cost of living. And there is, uh, you know, I think a lot of the current mentality of the way to solve it is just to fix the economy so people can continue moving in that direction and we don't have to question it. And I think the the minimalist movement and the tiny home movement is saying, hey, isn't there some other options? You know, can't we pull back a little bit? Yeah. And I do think it's important to say that while there's no bigger carrier of the torch for the tiny house movement than yourself, I've certainly, you know, I don't live in a tiny house. I don't want to live in a tiny house. But the idea of of what a tiny house can be, an efficient house, of the minimalism, all that stuff, I really, really do subscribe to. But again, I think it's important to say what we're talking about is not for everybody. And that's the thing I just want. I, I It kind of crushes me when people feel like, oh, yeah, this this solution has to work for everyone. It does not. Oh, you're just you're advocating that everybody just move into tiny boxes. That's what you're doing. It's like, yeah. No, not at all. Right. And that's not what the show is about. That's not what the tiny house nation was about. It's just showing another option. I think there's so many good things that can come from it. And at the very least, I do think that we should make some, some room in the zoning laws in permitting and in the laws to allow that to happen for the people that want it to happen. And that is a much bigger discussion that I don't necessarily want to get into, but I wanted to make that point. We're not talking about no one's going to come to your house and be like, hi, great. Thanks. Sorry. You're going to have to come out here and move into this tiny house. We're knocking this thing down. <laughs> Although I did do a show like that once, but that doesn't, that didn't, that didn't fly. So just want to be clear about that. Yeah. 
Yeah, no. And I think that, you know, back to kind of the beginning of this conversation a little bit in terms of what our show did really well was instead of getting in the weeds of the legality of, okay, this is how it fits into codes. This is how you can use it. This is, you know, we just basically showed an inspiration, an inspirational model for what it could be if the laws caught up with where the movement and where the demand from the public was coming from, you know? And, and I think that that was credit to, you know, to producers and to the network to kind of allow that to be the case. And I think that that also going back into kind of my upbringing as a Quaker, you know, part of the reason that I've like continued in life to identify with the faith is that I've just, you know, all my life, I've heard about how the Quakers have been in this position of kind of almost being ahead of the times in terms of their moral calling outweighing like their compliance with the laws, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. whether you're talking about the Underground Railroad, which the Quakers were a big part of it, which they actually risked their freedom and their life to, to because their moral calling was saying, no, slavery is wrong. We need to do something about this, right? All the way through to the, um, uh, you know, anti-war movement where, you know, actually members of my family in World War I were, were persecuted for having not complied and not joined the army to fight in the war. You know, there's uh, my grandfather actually, you know, would never forgive himself because he actually did join the army to fight in World War II and then regretted it for the rest of his life. And then also into the uh, civil rights movement and women's suffrage. So like the Quakers have always been kind of ahead of the times when it comes to the laws of the time. And let's not forget their great work in oatmeal, too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We've been, just while we're listing you know, off accomplishments, I'm just saying yeah, health, some really, you know, yeah, yeah you vegetarianism know? and health. Yeah. yeah, oats and grains. <laughs> you know, it's, and so I don't see kind of tiny homes as any different. And I, that is a little bit of a stretch. I'll be like, what are you talking about? You know, you're talking about the Underground Railroad. Now you're talking about tiny homes. No, we're talking Zach's about- Zach's a hero, guys. <laughs> he, he's Harriet Tubman. He's, he's just- we're, we're talking- Out there banging yeah. the drum. We're, when we're talking about tiny homes, we're talking about a topic that touches in on some of the biggest challenges that are facing society, right? You know, it is about housing. It's about creating a safety net that is obviously so needed within our country in terms of you just look at the homelessness issues, right? It's about housing affordability and just providing enough housing, allowing homes to be built in sufficient supply so that we don't get crushed by the cost of housing. But it's also about addressing our our challenges with the environment and, and the carbon footprint and how we're going to kind of, as society, readjust the the way that we're living and the way that we're demanding the resources of this planet. And so, you know, to me, the fact that tiny homes are not legal is something that I could care less about because it's so obvious that this is a, this is a situation where morally we need to do something different and we will be doing something different in the future. And our laws just haven't caught up with that yet. Well said, buddy. Well said. I think that's as good a place as any to conclude this. I do think that we're going to be having conversations like this one, I think we're going to be having 
some more lighthearted conversations, Mm -hmm. maybe about the show with either people that were uh, on our crew or that we featured on the show. I think we're going to talk to architects. We're going to talk to minimalists. We're going to, we're going to talk to, well, anyone who will talk to us, we're going to (laughs) talk to as many people as we can. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I hope that you all join us on this, on this trail into the tiny house tales, because I think it's going to be a lot of fun. And Zach, as you said, not the main reason, but at the, but the very least we do have a brotherly love. We do have a connection. We don't get to see each other enough. So the idea of doing this on the regular mm-hmm. and getting to chat, I really look forward to. So yeah. I, I think it's going to be a lot of fun, buddy. Yeah. I hope everybody tunes in, listens up. But if they don't, I'm still going to love talking. <laughs> I love it. All right. All right, buddy. See you next week. Okay, John. <laughs>